All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful that Christ is our safe and secure refuge we can run to in times of fear and times of trouble. And uh, we have run to Him often and found our sure relief. And we have confidence that um, He will accomplish His purposes through us and throughout eternity when He comes to reign as King. It seems unclear at times uh, who is in charge. Uh, there is much disputed sovereignty going on. It seems like Satan's running the show from a worldly perspective, but, but we know um, from your word and based on your promises that you are the king of all kings and that Christ will come to reign and he will prove uh, once and for all that he is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who, who alone can deliver. And so we put our trust in him. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the opportunity to, to look at it this morning. Would you shape us? Would you mold us and, and help us to be more like Jesus Christ as we uh, look into the mirror of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've uh, finished the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah. If you look at the, um, the uh, opening contents of your Bible, the index, there at the beginning of the Bible, you should see that we're starting a new section today, um, which is sometimes referred to as the historical books. So the first five books of the Bible the, are the Law of Moses or the Pentateuch. Um, the, the next several books from Joshua all the way through Esther are what um, a lot of people call the historical books. Now, when Jesus referred to the Old Testament, he said that he referred to them in three ways, the Law the books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. So the prophets include um, books, obviously the major and minor prophets, and then the writings include both the poetic books and the historical books. But since that time, um, church leaders and theologians have broken it down into four sections, not that they're trying to improve upon what Jesus said, but, but these are historical books. So what we have here, beginning in Joshua, is really a continuation of what's going on in Deuteronomy. Now this is not the way it always happens when you move from one book to another, that you're just moving on chronologically in the, in the story of, of the Bible. But that's how it happens here in Joshua and Judges. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We just pick up where we left off at the end of Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, um, Moses died. He finished his sermon to the children of Israel. He's, he's able to go up to the top of Mount Pisgah and, and see the promised land from a distance. He could not enter it because of his sin at Meribah. Um, of striking the rock instead of speaking to it. And, uh, and then he dies, and the baton is ha- handed over to Joshua. And Joshua now is on the east side of the Jordan with the, the younger generation of Israel ready to cross over into the Promised Land. And let's look at the last part of um, Joshua, Joshua 21. We'll kind of see where this thing concludes. Joshua 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So here we have the fulfillment of three promises that God had made, rest, land, and 
uh, protection from enemies. And this is, this is Israel now experiencing some of that blessing. Now, the ultimate rest, the ultimate land, the ultimate protection from enemies is going to come in the future for all who believe in Christ and the promised Redeemer. But, but for now, they get a taste of it here in this promised land. And really, that's how the book breaks down. Um, there, there is um, God delivering them from their enemies in chapters 6 through 11. Chapter 6 is the Battle of Jericho, then it moves on into the Battle of Ai and so on. And then uh, God talks to Joshua about how to distribute the land, how to, how, to, um, how to allocate the land to the various tribes. That's chapters 12 through 22. And um, from our perspective, it's largely boring material because it's just um, just mentioning families and what locations that they have and and so on. Uh, and then re- and then the rest is described in chapters 23 and 24. Um, so let's think about the historical context where we are. So the Exodus happened around 1446 BC, and then uh, then the events of Joshua happen about 40 years later, of course, because they wandered in the wilderness between that time and Joshua. Uh, Joshua's events here, 1407 to about 1380. So we have about 27 years of of history going on in the book of Joshua. And then Judges, we'll get to a little bit later, uh, you have another 300 years going on there. As far as dispensational context, we're still in the, the dispensation of the law. They're still under the law of Moses. They need to obey God's requirements with regard to civil, ceremonial, and moral. And then the theme of Joshua is that God leads his people to obey his word by eliminating sin so that he can give them what he has promised. This is what God had intended to do from the time uh, of the wilderness wandering. He wanted to turn them away from sin into holiness so that he could give them what they promised. The older generation was not willing to follow God in that regard. And so God allowed them to uh, in some sense, enjoy the fruits of their sins or experience the consequences of their sin. And um, so now we come to Joshua with this new generation who's willing to trust God. And I'm going to um, move through these two books uh, rather quickly because we have two videos to watch um, that summarize both of these books. And so um, a lot of the stuff here in your handout I probably won't get to. Uh, in fact, let's uh, let's uh, let's think about this idea of rest that that Israel is now experiencing to some degree, right? Look at verse 44 again, and the Lord gave them rest on every side. Uh, so now they're in the land, and instead of this constant conflict and uncertainty and wondering about what's going to happen from their enemies, they finally get an opportunity to enjoy um, some rest. And this kind of rest is what God really intends for all of us, um, back to Genesis 2, 2 and 3, right? That God wants us to actually take rest even in our work. We might not think that those two things can go together, but but there is a restfulness that happens even in the midst of service. Um, and the the real work is the, the toiled work that comes as a result of the, the curse, the real labor, the laborious part of work is because of the curse, right? You remember what happened after the fall that God said to you, man, now you're going to have to toil even more. The, the, by, the, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to 
to, to take care of the land. It's not going to be easy and fun uh, as work was intended to be. Uh, a, a joy and a rest instead of it's going to be toilsome labor. And now God is giving them a, a taste of what rest ought to be like. And, um, and one of the reasons that we know that work can be restful is because God works and rests on the seventh day of His creation, right? So He, he works on the, the sixth day, and then on the seventh day He rests. But He doesn't completely stop doing everything, right? He doesn't completely stop um, keeping the, the world spinning. He doesn't stop sustaining us uh, or His creation, I should say, at that time. So, so in God's rest, He's still working. Uh, similar to the, the priests, right? Even on the Sabbath day, they were required to rest but even um, their rest required some work. They couldn't stop working. They still had to offer sacrifices and so on. And so I would suggest that that work is, was intended to be restful in some sense. And so what we have here in this life is is kind of an imperfect rest um, <clears throat> that, that we can't fully experience until we get to the next life when God fulfills His promise. And so in this in this way, the rest of the people of Israel is not perfect. It it kind of foreshadows or looks forward to a time when they would have perfect rest. This life is a battle and even even when they they landed in the promised land, they they settled down there, um, we might think, well, they were free from all the the troubles and and so on, but but there was still work to do. In fact, at the beginning of Joshua or the beginning of Judges, um, one of the tribes, and I can't remember which one, but one of the tribes comes to Joshua and says, we don't have enough land. We're just too crammed over here. And he says, well, have you done everything that you're supposed to do? You're supposed to drive out all the rest of the Canaanites. And they said, well, no, we don't want to because it's too much work. And and he said, well, don't come crying to me. Basically, it's my paraphrase of the whole story, but don't come crying to me that you don't have enough land. You have plenty of land. You just need to finish your, your, your job. So, Really, when, when God dispossessed the Canaanites, he, he, he dispossessed the large pockets of them, but there were still some that were living uh, in, in the cities where they lived, and so their job was to continue to work and to continue to, um, to fight and, and, and so on. Uh, let's turn to Matthew 11 and uh, see that uh, this rest was not just intended for Old Testament Israel, again, I, I constantly remind you that we are not Old Testament Israel, uh, so we can't just steal their promises, just like you know, someone else's father promised to, to take them to the amusement park. We can't steal that promise and say, well, that, that's my promise too. That's not our father, okay? That's, um, we're not their children, okay? So we, we, um, we are not Israel, so we can't steal their promises. Um, we need to recognize which ones apply to us, that is, which promises of God apply to all of humankind, like Genesis chapter uh, 12 and 15, the promise to Abraham, and which ones apply just to, to Israel. But let me show you here um, this concept of rest with um, Jesus in verse 28. He says, and uh, he began saying to him, um, uh, the chief priests and the scribes came to him and began saying to him, "By what authority are you doing these things, or who have who gave you this authority to do these things?" Um, that's not the passage I'm looking for. 
I'm in Mark. That's why. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Can you read that for us, Jonathan? Matthew? Alright, so here Jesus is making an offer to all who will come to Him, all who will believe in Him. And what does He offer to them? That if you'll take His yoke upon you, then what will He give to you? Okay, that um, He says at the end of verse 29, he, you will find rest for your souls. Now this rest, I think, does include the future rest where we will be free from all enemies and all trouble and all um, kind of the laborious labor um, that's, that's difficult. But, but there is a sense in which this rest comes now. It sounds like Jesus is saying that even in this lifetime you'll experience some rest in comparison to the yoke that you had in unbelief, living as an unbeliever. That's a yoke that's weighing down on you and that cripples you. We still have a yoke as Christians, right? He says, my yoke is easy, so take my yoke upon you. This not, we don't take the yoke off of our necks. We still are yoked, uh, in a sense, to Christ. And so there still is work to do. But there's also rest. And as a Christian, we all recognize this, that, that the life of a Christian is not easy. Uh, we are constantly in a battle. But at the same time, um, we recognize that it's much easier than our non-Christian counterpart, right? We see their life, and they walk through these difficulties that they have to go through, and they do it without Christ. Or they walk through these successes in life, in their eyes, and they do it without Christ. They have no sense of what the purpose of life is. They have no sense of where they're going, and um, and they're deceived. And, and so in that sense, their yoke is heavy. They are enslaved to their sins. And so our rest is is real rest and um and yet still still to be perfect when we get to the next life. All right, any questions or comments on that? Pardon me? Significant events happen in your life within the last year, and if so, you know you need to you need to cut back on on other things. You don't want to. So if you've moved in the last year, if you've lost a loved one, you know, had a divorce, and it, all these things that that bring stress on, and and yeah, you you have all those changes, and they can um, unsettle you. But but ultimately, as a Christian, I mean, Jonathan, you're right that that our there's no foundation, there's no uh, anchor if we don't have Christ. And, and I often imagine going through the same kinds of troubles that I go through without Christ and, and can't think of how people even do it. Um, um, so, yeah, I, 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 uh, I see what you're saying there. 
Uh, well, we need to move the judges, so we'll skip over the violent section. Um, I think, um, do you think we, I've preached through Joshua, and we have, I think we have those on the website, but I was trying to think of the specific passage where I would have spoken about this. Uh, if you want to know more about that, specifically why such violence, you know, destroy all the people, um, then um, I can point you to a, a sermon on that. All right, let's think through uh, Judges here. So we had this kind of um, climax in the story of history up until this point that, you know, the people had turned away from God and now God created a people and He brought them out of slavery through the wilderness into the promised land. And what an amazing thing that God actually followed through on this promise to give them this land of Canaan. And now Judges starts with um, Joshua dying and the baton being passed on to really no one. Um, in fact, the first verse of Joshua is, Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And so Joshua's dead. They don't have a legitimate leader. And they're still in the land at this point. But the people start to turn away from God, and so we're going to see this pattern that, that happens over and over again. Uh, theme there at the top, the people of God learn that they need a righteous, covenant-keeping king if they're to be a faithful people. Yet regardless of their failings, God is still faithful, sending many small-ass saviors to deliver them from their enemies, or we call them judges. And just to get an idea of how this works, this book works, uh, the the uh, outline on the back of your handout, Judges 1 and 2, the transition transition after the death of Joshua, and then Judges 2, uh, the end of Judges 2, um, a summary of Israel's sin, which we're going to go through briefly here. And then Judges 3 through 16, seven stories of Israel's sin and God's deliverance. So there's a cycle where Israel sins, fall into oppression, they cry out to God, God delivers, and they go back into the cycle again. We're going to see seven stories of that. And then the last five chapters are, are these two terrible stories of Israel's just utter degradation, their utter depravity. And um, we're not going to, to go into those today, but it, it highlights the fact that, that Israel needs a godly king, which will lead us into the next books of um, Ruth and Samuel. All right. So let's turn to chapter 2 and see this summary, and then we'll, um, we'll wrap it up here and move on to the videos. So this is a longer um, cycle or longer, more detailed summary of what happens to Israel over and over again these seven times. Um, I, I like to think of it in, in just four stages. This is a little bit more detailed, but... But I like to think of it as Israel sins against God. They fall into oppression. They cry out to God and God delivers. Once God delivers, they start getting fat again and they go back to the first one. Israel sins against God. God sends them into some kind of oppression. They cry out to God for help. God sends a deliverer. It just happens over and over again, those four steps. But here's a more detailed look at it. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, 
nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So the generation of Joshua, the ones that were faith-filled, eyes wide open, willing to trust God no matter what, the ones that are willing to just take only, you know, their their sandals to a fight against Jericho, you know, basically just walk around the the city seven times and then seven times on the seventh day. People who are willing to trust God, no matter how crazy it sounded, those have all died. And now another generation grew up who didn't know the Lord. Reminds me of Exodus 2, right, where um, you have Pharaoh who um, who just loved Joseph and the work that he did for the, the land of Egypt. But then another Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph and did not know all the, the reasons why they, they were so kind to to Israel and, and before long the, the whole situation changed. Here, these people don't know the Lord. They're, they're not... Um, they, they've forgotten God. And when people forget God, they end up serving other gods. Verse 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed the other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were among them and bowed themselves down to them. Verse 12, um, at the end of the verse, it says, They provoked the Lord to anger, so God grows angry. And then um, verse um, 13, again, summarizes they forsook the Lord and served the Baal. Verse 14 shows how God sends some kind of oppression on them so that it will wake them up. If they're not going to listen to God, then sometimes God uses physical circumstances to wake us up um, to the, the fact that He must be obeyed. And so verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord has spoken and as the Lord has sworn to them so that they would be severely distressed. Then um, the people cry out to God and, and that's really... Um, not stated between verses 15 and 16, but if you look down in verse um, 18, the middle of verse says, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. So it implies that there was some kind of groaning that happened there. The people actually cried out to God. And God has pity on them. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges or deliverers who delivered them. We, we think of judges like you know sitting on a bench and making choices. And for, for these judges uh, did have some of that responsibility, but but primarily we should think of them as deliverers, people who, who were used by God to deliver Israel out from under the oppression of their enemies. Um, and uh, at the end of verse 18, God was the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. So he sent this deliverer. He delivers them through this judge. The beginning of verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And we just see this over and over again. You know, you first have Gideon, and Gideon, as long as he's alive, is bringing Israel great prosperity and freedom and protection. Uh, but when he dies, um, he, he even moves into some sin at the end of his life and, and sets up an idol. Um, and and then his family uh, comes after him and and uh, basically capitalizes on that or makes it even worse. And uh, they move back into their sin that they that they love. Israel forgets God in verse 19. 
But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And so the cycle starts all over again and they forget God. They serve other gods. God grows angry, sends oppression, some kind of foreign invaders. They cry out to him. He has pity on them. He delivers them through a judge. And and it happens again and again. And the point of all this is to show that a people without God are going to be um, lost. I mean, a people without God's grace are are really of no... Um, they, they live with no direction. There's not much purpose in life apart from... I should say it this way. There is no purpose in life apart from God and apart from God's grace. And so what the people need is what we need, and that is the continual grace of God. We continually need to be leaning on Him, saying, God, we we can't settle this issue. We can't live without You. Even in times of success, we can't live without You. And so, um, keep me close to You. Any questions on that? Chapters 1 through 16? Comments? Alright, these last five chapters... um, Let's just uh, briefly look at a few things here. Look at chapter 17, verse 6. And here's this phrase that we think of most likely when we think about the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own in his own eyes. And it's stated a couple more times. You can see this again in chapter 21, verse 25. The very last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what's the author saying here? Which, by the way, we don't know who the author of Judges is. Um, This happened over the period of 380 years, probably, somewhere in there. So it's not a person who lived during that whole time and witnessed all these things firsthand. It may have been somebody like Ezra, but whatever the case, it was written. And um, the author wants us to, to, to have this last thought in our minds when we finish the book, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. And and this is what we've been seeing throughout the book of Judges, that, that, that Israel needs a covenant-keeping king. They need, I mean, they had, they experienced it to some degree, didn't they, with these judges? They kind of experienced what it was like to have a godly leader who would lead them to obey the covenant. That's, Moses, that's Joshua, that's Gideon, that's you know Othniel and so on. Uh, throughout their time that they were alive, they were bringing people back to God. Let's tear down these altars. And so what would it be like if they actually had a king, that just a perpetual kingdom that allowed them to be able to, to focus on God? Now, obviously you might be thinking through just the books of Samuel and, and Chronicles and thinking, well, or the books of Kings and thinking you know, that there wasn't much good there. Um, but there actually was good there, especially when you had kings like David and you had kings like um, you know, uh, Hezekiah and Josiah and, and so on. Uh, you had kings who actually served God and were leading the people to serve God. That was good for Israel. Now, we might also think at the beginning of Samuel and think, well, wasn't it bad for Israel to desire a king? Well, the reason it was bad for them to desire kings is not because that kings are inherently evil. I mean, we have a king who's perfectly good. But rather, it was bad for Israel to desire a king because they desired to to be like the pagan nations. 
they thought that they could put all their confidence in the king. It wasn't didn't make the king inherently bad. Um, and and so what Israel ultimately needs, and what we ultimately need, um, even as we look at our own nation, we need a, a we need a king. We need a perfect king who will lead us to obey God's perfect uh, God's perfect law. And uh, obviously, we don't have the law of Moses that's that we are responsible to obey, but we still do have the law of Christ. And uh, how much greater will it be for people to live under that perfect king? And so that will lead us into Ruth and Samuel, and um, that's where we'll move next. Any questions or comments? All right. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. So two 